What's going on guys? My name is Dan and I'm thankful that you were able to join us in person or online today. As usual, I have a couple of announcements for you, so let's get going. Did you know that the market is open on Sundays from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. and on Mondays from 10 a.m. until noon? Last weekend, we helped over 30 families in just four hours. The ministry needs are great. Please pray for our guests and our volunteers that the gospel would go forward. And if you're able, please bring an item or two on your next grocery shop to help keep our shelves full. For a full list of all of the needs and to get involved, head on over to rbclondon.ca slash market. We are offering our Step 2 course Saturday, March 12th. What is Step 2? Step 2 is the next step in making Redemption your church home. This course is designed to help you understand the fundamental elements of redemption. It's our desire that everybody who calls Redemption their church home and anybody thinking of making this their church home takes this course. This course will help you understand what it truly means to abide, connect, and share in what we call the 5G life. Registration is open and required, so head on over to rbclondon.ca slash next steps. And finally, our next child dedication is coming up on Sunday, March 13th. We acknowledge that children are a gift from God. And child dedication is a public declaration of the parent's intention to raise their child in a Christ-centered home. If you're interested in having your child dedicated, please email childdedications at rbclondon.ca for more information. Well, that's all I have for you today. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at info at rbclondon.ca. Take care and God bless. Come on, let's stand together. Let's worship the one who's worthy of our praise this morning. Crown him with many crowns. Lay him upon his throne. We sing together. Crown him with many crowns. The lamp upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly drowns all music but its own we sing awake my soul and sing of him who died
sing Awake My Soul and sing. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for me. Thank you, Lord. And hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Through all eternity. Praise you, Lord. Behold my name. You call my name, Lord. I was buried, but not beneath my shame. You know, I was saying, who could carry? Oh, 
sing the good news. See the stone is rolled away. Behold the empty tomb. The church we sing. first service. It feels like an Easter service. It's so good. Praise the Lord. Amen. Yes, we can praise the Lord together. He's so good. And I remember this song. Every time we sang it at Easter, we'd sing it, and it was usually at the beginning, and I'd lose my voice as what's happening now. God is good. There's no better thing to happen than losing your voice singing praises to the King of Kings. Amen. Why don't you have a seat together? It is so, so good for us to be together and to lift our voices in praise of the one who is worthy of our praise, to sing the gospel together, to rehearse the gospel together. And we're going to move into a time, we're going to continue worshiping the Lord with a time of communion. So I'm going to have Sarah sing a beautiful hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. She's going to lead us in that. Feel free to sing along with her as we just meditate and really prepare our hearts to celebrate communion together. There's some people that are walking around. If you did not receive uh, prepackaged the, the cup and the bread when you came in, if you just want to put your hand up, there's some people that are coming around. They would love to serve you, make sure that you get that. But let's, um, let's just continue to lean in, look to our Savior, and um, celebrate together.
going to continue our worship as we move. give you a moment to uh, make sure your packets are prepared. I myself struggle all the time with this top cellophane layer. In Luke 22, 19, Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of me. Perhaps it's shocking that we would need a reminder. But our Lord knows that we're forgetful sheep. We need a way, multiple ways, perhaps, to think afresh about what was accomplished by the cross. So let's begin by reading Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. In my Bible, it refers to this as the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day comes when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this wonderful institution the Lord gave us causes us to remember a lot of things. I'm just going to think about five of them this morning. First, to remember the incarnation. When Jesus said, this is my body, let us recall that the word was made flesh and dwelt among men. We're also called to remember, of course, the death of Jesus. As Jesus declared, this is my blood, we recall perhaps the scourging, the torment, the indignation, the aloneness that our Savior would have felt. And of course, Matthew's 26, 28 tells us that we must remember and celebrate the forgiveness of our sins. His body was broken, his blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We should never tire of hearing and delighting that our sins are now as far from us as the East is from the West. And we should remember the community of believers that he created and our unity to one another made by Christ. And when Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, it should kindle a longing for the full experience of his kingdom. For we're taking communion today as a family of believers, but one day we will partake with our Savior and rejoice eternally. We're all going to partake together as a community of believers, and so I would like you to take note that communion is, in fact, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and accepted the free gift of God's grace 
And if that's not you, then I'd ask you to please refrain from participating, but, but also take note of what it is we're remembering. And I pray that the truth would be made clear to you. Can I ask you to stand now as we'll go to the Lord in prayer? Lord, thank you for the wonderful act of remembrance that you have instituted. Help us now as you bring into our minds the glory of your incarnation, the sacrifice of the cross, the cleansing of our sins, the unity of the body, and the assurance of life everlasting in your presence. Lord, may these glorious truths sink deep into our hearts and minds, and may we share these truths with our family, our friends, our neighbors, all of those you bring to us. And Lord, may we exhort and encourage each other in the faith. Thank you, Lord, that you are building your church. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 24. And we'll participate participate during the reading of that. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night where he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we'll take the wafer and partake together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this club, cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you, Lord, for this time of communion. Now speak to us through your word and the Holy Spirit as we lean into what you have for us this day. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we had the chance to celebrate uh, Free Indeed with all of us guys getting together in this room. I think it was... Well over 200 guys gathered together and the Lord was surely working and moving. We had a chance to teach uh, a couple songs. One of the songs that we taught was Christ Be Magnified and we wanna, we wanna teach you that this morning. So I know you sat down, but why don't we stand, why don't we stand together as we, uh, as we teach you this new song and we worship the Lord together.
Well, good morning, Redemption Bible Chapel. It is good to be back with you. And I encourage you now to turn with me in God's Word to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. When I was 20, 21 years of age, I got a hold of Tolkien's uh, The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, and I read them for the first time and found them rather engaging, enthralling, actually. The battles and the, the journey and the pilgrimage and everything else going on in that narrative, in that story. And uh, I've watched the movies whenever they came out. I don't know how many years ago now. I've watched them a couple of times. And this past December, uh, my youngest, Emma, she said to me, Dad, I want to I wanna watch the movies. I said, well, read the books. And uh, so she sat down, she read those books, plowed through them in about a month. And so in January, we took three Friday nights and we watched uh, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Emma was captivated with uh, orcs and elves, but um, my attention gravitated to Samwise Gamgee. Um, in the past, I couldn't stand Samwise Gamgee. I found him annoying and irritant, complaining, whining. I don't know what it was. But this time watching the movies, I found that character to be particularly riveting, uh, arresting, really. And it, uh, it comes down to this. I was really drawn to his loyalty, his commitment, his faithfulness to Frodo. At one particularly perilous point in the journey, uh, Samwise Gamgee says, out loud, I'll go home by the long road with Mr. Frodo, or not at all. I will go home by the long road with Mr. Frodo, or not at all. His faithfulness transcends hope and despair, joy and sorrow, gain and loss, pain and comfort, life and death, his faithfulness is compelled by love. That's the punchline this morning, faithfulness compelled by love. That's where we're going to end as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 25, as we discover something far more riveting than the Lord of Rings, something far more compelling than that relationship between Frodo and Samwise. And here the Lord Jesus himself points us to faithfulness. It is riveting, it is compelling, it is encouraging, and it is challenging. And follow along now as I begin reading in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, 
You deliver to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed, and gather where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Follow me. Back to verse 14. For it. What is the it? All the way back to verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. And in the first 13 verses, the Lord Jesus draws a comparison between the kingdom of heaven and these ten virgins. And now in verse 14, take that phrase, kingdom of heaven, insert it, substitute it for the word it, complete the thought for the kingdom of heaven. He's now making a second comparison. Will be like. And in English, as soon as we see that word like or as, we know we are dealing with a simile. It's an expression of speech. This simile goes on and on and on. And the Lord Jesus, in this comparison, in this simile, appropriates an experience from everyday life with which the disciples can relate, and he completes the simile with this illustration. We call this a parable, an extended simile drawn from an everyday experience with the intent purpose of driving home a point. Please understand this. The parables rarely convey new information. It's not what they're there for. The truths have already been stated by way of propositional statements, declarations. The design, or rather the aim of a parable, is not your head. It's your heart. The purpose of a parable is to drive home a truth. It is to make a point, and yes, it is to impress that truth upon the mind, but equally important, it is to get beyond the mind, whereby that truth embraces the heart, takes root, and is then expressed, bears fruit in all of life. And so that's what we have here is a second parable, verses 14 through 30, and the point of the parable is simply this. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. 
And just as in the case of the first parable, the reality of Christ's coming, it is a future reality which we are to make a present certainty right now. And when it is a present certainty in our lives, it will manifest itself in watchfulness. Well, the Lord Jesus now is making a closely related point. He is coming again. And that future reality, that future certainty should also become a present certainty which shapes our current reality. And when it does, yes, it will produce watchfulness. And secondly, it will produce faithfulness. Faithfulness with all that our Master has entrusted to us. And so we really see it in verses 21 and 23 in the case of servant number one, servant number two. The Lord Jesus makes exactly the same declaration to these two servants. Look at it in the 21st verse. His Master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the point. Why five talents? Why three talents? Why one talent? It's not relevant. It's not important. Why does he go out and invest it and double his talents? Again, you're getting lost in the weeds. The point is this. He was faithful. That's the point. And the Lord Jesus acknowledges it through the language of the Master. Well done. And notice the description. Good and faithful servant. And he uses the word again. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You get it again in the 23rd verse. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so, yes, we know we're supposed to be faithful. But here, by way of an illustration... The Lord Jesus makes this reality come alive to us as He seeks to grip the heart with this wonderful truth. He is coming again. Make it real. When it is real, we will be faithful. Here's what I want to do. I want to make five observations concerning the faithful. Five observations. For the first two, I'm going to go elsewhere in Scripture. Then we're going to return to this text and add observations 3, 4, and 5. I think this is important. I think observations 1 and 2 are extremely important to set the context for this. I think there's a natural flow, and I find them unbelievably encouraging. So we're going to go elsewhere for observation 1, observation 2, and then right back to the parable for 3, 4, and 5. And all we're trying to wrestle with then is simply this, the faithful. Who are they? And what do they look like? You got it? That's our goal today. So observation number one to that end. Here it is. The faithful are followers of Christ. The faithful are followers of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 we read that when the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. And so at the time of the incarnation. He declared, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Did you hear that? The incarnation. What was the purpose of the incarnation? Your salvation? Yes, secondary, actually. My salvation? Secondary, yes. 
The renovation of the entire cosmos, secondary in actual fact. These are fruits, benefits that all flow from a far greater reality. And is this, I have come to do your will, O God. That is why he came into this world. And we read in Hebrews chapter 3 that he was faithful. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Faithful in all that he gave him to do. Faithful in his commission, faithful in all that he was commanded to do, faithful in all that he promised to do as he pledged himself to do the will of his Father who sent him. He proved himself to be faithful to the one who appointed him. When tempted by Satan, he was faithful to him who appointed him. When opposed and hounded, ridiculed, attacked by the religious leaders. He was faithful to him who appointed him. When hungry, weary, worn out, exhausted, he was faithful to him who appointed him. When deserted by the multitudes, abandoned, he was faithful to him who appointed him. When betrayed by a close friend closer than a brother, he was faithful to him who appointed him. And when tormented upon Calvary's cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was faithful to him who appointed him. Behold, I have come to do your will. Oh God, that is faithfulness. And the faithful are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you get that one? Building on it, observation number two. The faithful are filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. There is a direct relationship between Christ's filling with the Spirit and our filling with the Spirit. Yes, Christ, fully God, fully man, at the, as He embarked on His public ministry, He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the source of all His ministerial gifts. The Holy Spirit is the source of His wisdom, His insight, His power to perform miracles. And the Holy Spirit is the source of that character that is developed in Christ's humanity, whereby when we turn to the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5.22, and we read of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, we discover, we realize that these are the fruit that the Holy Spirit first produced in Christ. And Christ, who is now ascended on high at the right hand of the Father, enthroned in majesty, reigning over centuries, reigning over all time, all events, from the molecule to the supernova. His humanity continues to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Father, hear this, Christian, please. The Father sends the Spirit through the Son to us. And the Spirit dwells in us. And the Spirit is now simply reproducing that character 
which he first produced in the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we bear fruit, joy, peace, yes, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The faithful are filled with the Holy Spirit. The faithful are those in whom the character of Christ is being reproduced by the Holy Spirit. That is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be spiritual, doesn't mean you win every theological argument. It doesn't mean you have some spectacular spiritual gift or experience. The signs, the marks of the filling of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the faithful are followers of Christ. The faithful are filled with the Holy Spirit. Observations 1 and 2, returning to our parable for observation number 3. The faithful are stewards of all that Christ has entrusted to us. You see that in the 14th verse. For it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. This is the essence then of faithfulness. To be faithful is to receive a stewardship. And it is to discharge or fulfill, complete that stewardship in a manner that glorifies the one who entrusted it to us. Well, the Lord Jesus, speaking to believers, the Lord Jesus has entrusted to you, He has entrusted to me a stewardship. To be faithful is to complete, exercise that stewardship in a manner that glorifies Him. It begs the obvious question, a question that the Lord Jesus doesn't actually answer in the text. The question is this, what has He entrusted to us? Some have read this parable and restricted it to money, making it all about money, 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 money. I think money is there. We might get to it in a moment. Others have, have thought in terms of natural abilities. We, we get that word talent from this parable. America's got talent. The word talent comes from Matthew 25, a natural ability, a skill. And so some think in that way. But what is it? What is it that the Lord Jesus has entrusted to His people that qualifies as a stewardship that we are actually then to fulfill in a manner that glorifies Him? As I have thought this through and just gone through Scripture... Listening to the disciples, especially in the New Testament, over the past couple of weeks, and just ask that question, well, what is it? What is it he's entrusted to us? I came up with a list as long as my arm. You are going to be pleased to hear me say this morning, we are not going to get through the entire list. I have narrowed it down to seven, all right? What I perceive to be the big seven, seven common to all of us. God's people, uh, seven stewardships that we have um, just from ordinary, everyday life that we are called to fulfill in a manner that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, in a manner that will ensure on that day we will hear Him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the reward, the joy 
of your master. So here's number one. Christ has entrusted the gospel to us. I think that's a great place to start. Peter declares, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim that you, 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 that I might proclaim the excellencies of he who has called us out of darkness and transferred, translated us to the kingdom of light. That's a stewardship, my friend. We are to make his excellencies known. When we think of this, we usually go big. I was recently reading a little bit about Lottie Moon. She was an American missionary, raised in Virginia, post-Civil War. So I think it was maybe 1870s, she went out, Baptist missionary, to China. Never returned home, never saw family, friends, homeland again. Off she went to China. She died of starvation during the First World War and carried on a tremendous ministry in China, proclaiming the excellencies of her God. All right, God called Lottie Moon to China. Maybe there's someone here God is calling to China or calling to serve cross-culturally somewhere else. Most of us know. Here we are. What does it mean to proclaim? Me, right here, now, London, Ontario, to proclaim the excellencies of God. Well, for starters, I think it just simply means that neighbor. That fellow we've lived beside for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, right? I think it means that brother or sister who's moved out west, isn't a believer. We only see them once every three or four years. It obviously means our children, those whom God has placed in our home. It simply means those who God brings into our lives. It simply means we're ready. We have this impulse, this instinct to insert the Lord Jesus Christ into our conversations and proclaim His excellencies. And secondly, closely related, it is this. Paul uses this language a couple of times in his epistle to Titus. We adorn our proclamation with our lives. We adorn the proclamation of the gospel in the way we live. That as people look on, they see something is different. They see that we have sold everything to purchase that pearl, great treasure of inestimable worth. And now our lives are oriented according to the Lord Jesus Christ in comparison to whom we consider all things to be dung, rubbish, for this one goal, this one primary purpose, to know Him. And so, yes, we proclaim Him verbally. And yes, we, ordain, we adorn that proclamation in the manner we live before men and women. That's the first thing the Lord Jesus has entrusted to us. Here's the second. He has entrusted a home to us. Now that's going to look different for each of us. That's going to look very different for that man or woman who's been called to uh, singlehood versus that couple with seven, eight, bless them, nine children. It's going to look extremely different for that retired couple versus that couple who's just been married and is just starting out. But you bring it all together, this calling, 
this responsibility, whatever our family looks like presently, to see it as a home and to understand that this home is a stewardship. It is something that Christ has entrusted to us. It has been said that the ministry to be found in the home is of immense worth to the Lord. The stability of family relationships, the care of elderly or disabled family members, the discipling and training of children, the warm reception of guests, the making of a lifetime of memories, the daily modeling of biblical instruction, the joy of a Christ-centered marriage, all these things have eternal effects. If we are wise, we will recognize this fact and consider whether the choices we are making are either actively building up or tearing down our family. It is a stewardship. Christ has entrusted our home to us. Thirdly, He has entrusted time to us. If you are 35 years old, you have 500 days to live. Did you know that? If you're 35, I won't ask for a show of hands. If you're 35, you have 500 days to live. Meaning, after you subtract all the time you spend sleeping, eating, just getting done all that miscellaneous stuff that needs to get done, working, you basically have, assuming average life expectancy, you basically have 500 days to do what you want to do. I don't know what the math works out to for the 15-year-old or the 50-year-old or the 60-year-old, but you get the idea. The idea is this. Time is short. And time is valuable. It is short. James writes, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. It is short. So short. And time is uncertain. Proverbs 27, 1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Jonathan Edwards put it so eloquently, stated it so well, I can do no better than he did. He declared, I am resolved that I will live now as I will wish I had when I die. Time is a stewardship. The fourth thing Christ has entrusted to us is money. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give us give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so, yes, we have been entrusted with income. We have been entrusted with wealth. We have been entrusted with resources. This is a stewardship, and we are to use these things for the glory of God. At the height of the Great Depression, 1930s, the average Christian, on average, the Christian gave 3.4% of their annual income to the work of the Lord. In 2010, at the height of unbelievably abundant wealth, the average Christian, the Christian gives on average 2.5% percent of their wealth. Something has happened. 
Something has altered, shifted dramatically, drastically in the mindset of many believers. Look back on 2021, take out your checkbook, your bank statements, and delete everything that could be classified as an essential expenditure. What are you left with? Whatever I am left with tells me what I really value in life. Doesn't it? Whatever I'm left with tells me what I'm really fixed on, what I'm really living for. No, this has been entrusted. It is a trust. It is a deposit that our master, it belongs to him, has given to us. He has given us our, our, our families. He has given us time. He has given us wealth. And we are to use these things and employ these things with this one great question in view. How can I glorify God with that with which he has entrusted to me? Number five is this. Christ has entrusted roles and responsibilities to us. In whatever condition each was called, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Very important for us to understand this, friends. Very important for us in this room to grasp this. It is not about what you do, but how you do it. We are not all Lottie Moon. We are not all called to go halfway around the world and proclaim the gospel and to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are, go and go with the blessing of God. Most of us are called and will live our entire lives right here in Cambridge, Ontario or London, Ontario. And yes, we've been given a, a relationship in our marriage. Yes, we've been given kids. Yes, we've been given neighbors. Yes, I've got a calling in life, my job. These are the roles and responsibilities that God has given you, and they are glorious. And He calls you to glorify Him in these roles and responsibilities. Making clothes, designing buildings, laying bricks, installing windows, teaching students, painting walls, preaching sermons, cleaning floors, cutting grass. Balancing budgets, driving trucks, raising children, changing diapers, peeling potatoes, buying groceries. It is all glorious because it is all a commission from God Himself. And every role and responsibility has been entrusted to us. And we ask important questions. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? More to the point. For whom am I doing it? What is my motivation? What is my goal? And so there's a young man sitting here. I don't know, maybe not so man. You're young. You're an electrician. And you think to yourself, boy, Lottie Moon. Wow. Wow, I wish I were doing something for the Lord. Or some of these saints of old. and Missionaries and preachers and ministers and all this stuff. I'm just... Trying to eke out a living. No, brother, you've completely misunderstood. That is your calling. God has called you to that. Uh, you're an electrician, and you employ three men. You pay them a fair salary, don't you? I hope. You pay them a fair salary, with which they then support their families. 
You go into people's homes and you wire those homes. Why? So that families can live in them. And families can prosper and grow and flourish. And you do some wiring down at that plaza. A plaza which will then host different commercial businesses. Businesses which serve and contribute to the flourishing and the betterment of this society. And then you pay your taxes, don't you? The, ha- the glass is half full. Don't focus on the half empty. I know there's problems with that, paying your taxes. But you pay your taxes. And those taxes put up stoplights. Those taxes put in sidewalks. Those pa- taxes cover provincial parks and everything else. And a health care system. And you're contributing to the flourishing of a society. And you're doing it to glorify God. That is a glorious calling. And you do it with all your might, and you do it joyfully, and you do it faithfully, and you do it honestly, and you do it dependently. And you will hear on the judgment day from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Each of us with different roles and responsibilities, not one with more intrinsic worth than the other but roles and responsibilities to which King Jesus has appointed us for the betterment of ourselves, our families, the society, the community, the country in which we find ourselves. And we fulfill these roles and responsibilities for Him as faithful stewards. The sixth thing the Lord has entrusted to us is this, gifts. I'm thinking of spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they correspond to Christ's threefold office. So Christ is a prophet, is He not? Well, some of the spiritual gifts are of a prophetic nature, the preaching of the Word public proclamation of the Word, evangelism, exhortation, encouraging. Well, Christ is a priest, and some of the spiritual gifts correspond to His priestly office, whereby we meet one another's needs, serving and shepherding and giving and correcting and restoring and sharing and helping. And the Lord Jesus Christ is a King. And some of the spiritual gifts reflect his kingship. A king guides. So the gifts of administration, organization, planting, leading, disciplining, protecting. Every single believer in this room has a gift. The Spirit of God himself is the source of that gift. And my friend... If you are a part of Redemption Bible Chapel, you are not here to find out what this church can do for you. It's not why you're here. At least it isn't why you should be here. You are here to exercise your gift to serve others. For the edification of others. For the building up of others. For the good of others. And as we exercise then our gifts in cooperation in the context of a local church, that local church together flourishes and it grows up into maturity, into the measure, the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That is a trust that Christ has given to each one of us. 
And we are called to be faithful stewards in exercising and employing our gifts. And number seven, finally, Christ has entrusted struggles to us. That one might surprise you. Bear with me. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, who gave him the thorn. God gave him the thorn. A thorn was given me. We might even say entrusted to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Anybody here with any weaknesses? Don't raise your hand. I know the answer. Anybody here with any weaknesses? Anybody here with any problems? You're thinking to yourself, how many? How much time you got? Weaknesses, problems, struggles, things that you have been praying for the last couple of months, last couple of years, last couple of decades that the Lord would take away, that the Lord would remedy, that the Lord would remove. And time and time again, His reply to you has been what? My power. My power is made perfect in weakness. I will be glorified in your weakness. I will be glorified in your failures and your struggles and your problems and your obstacles, your illnesses, everything else that you see as detrimental and, and impediments to serving the Lord. He says, no, you've got it all backward. You've got it completely upside down. This is something I've entrusted to you. And I will be glorified in it. I'll be glorified by just putting a little stress on your faith, hope, and love. And uh, as I apply a little stress to your faith, hope, and love, I will strengthen them. Strengthen your faith in God. Strengthen your hope in what is to come. Strengthen your love for God and neighbor. We are called to be faithful with those struggles that Christ has entrusted to us. That's observation number three. You remember I told you the list is actually as long as my arm, but those seven, just those seven, forget about everything else, that's it. Those seven. That these are very simple gifts that my master, the Lord Jesus Christ, has placed into my hands. And he doesn't ask me to go halfway around the world. He doesn't ask me to get in some cutting edge ministry. He's not asking me to do anything off the charts or particularly spectacular. He might be asking one or two of you, but for most of us, he's just asking us to embrace the ordinary. The 24-7, with all our gusto, with joy, and to embrace it and do it and fulfill it with just one goal, to glorify our Lord and Master. Fourth observation then is this, the faithful are rewarded by Christ. That's right there in verse 21, right? Enter into the joy of your master. There it is again at the end of verse 23. Enter into the joy of your master. You might be thinking to yourself, well, that sounds awfully legalistic. This isn't legalism. Keep it in the context of the whole. The Lord Jesus is preaching a sermon. What's one of the biggest problems with a sermon? In a sermon, although you can't say everything, you can only say a certain part, right? You can't pack everything into a sermon, can you? And at times, sermons are open to misinterpretation because some people think, well, more should be said. Why didn't he say that? Why didn't he go there? Well, you've only got a certainly limited amount of time. 
You emphasize what you emphasize. And the Lord Jesus is emphasizing what he has chosen to emphasize here. And some could wrongly conclude from it, well, the Lord Jesus seems to be teaching legalism. I thought I was saved by grace. Mm. I thought it was all about faith. And now here it seems to be I'm going to be judged on the basis of my works. Friend, I'm about to burst your bubble. You are going to be judged on the basis of your works. So am I. Not as the meritorious cause of salvation, but as the demonstrable evidence, irrefutable proof of salvation. Hear these three statements, please. Faith takes hold of Christ, doesn't it? John 3, 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but what? Enjoy, inherit eternal life. Faith takes hold of Christ. Christ's merit, Christ's work, Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, Christ's perfect life. And faith has two components, doesn't it? Faith means I know Christ. This is eternal life, to know God and the one whom God has sent, Jesus Christ. Not only do I know Him intellectually, but I apply Him. I receive Him. We symbolically declared that in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, that as we eat that wafer, as we drink that cup, we appropriate them. They become part of us. This is indicating to us what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus. To believe in the Lord Jesus, yes, is to know Him intellectually. It is to receive Him, whereby we appropriate Him. He becomes one with us by the Holy Spirit. And the third thing I want you to understand then is this. Faith is always operative. Faith is always operative. Yes, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Yes, faith simply takes hold of the Lord Jesus. Yes, the Lord Jesus has done it all. But my friend, do make no mistake here. Faith is never stagnant. Faith always ushers in vitality, life. As Paul says in Galatians 5, faith works through love. Always, always, always. If there is not love, guess what? I don't care what you say. There is no faith. That's the point. Yes, it is faith alone. Yes, it is Christ's merit alone. But when I take hold of Christ, I come into contact with a living vine. And that life now blossoms in me. And the fruit issues forth in my life. And in Matthew 25, the Lord Jesus is talking about the fruit. What is the fruit? Well, verses 1 through 13 will be watchful. Verses 14 through 30 will be faithful. Verses 31 through 46, we will be merciful. No merit in these things. Simply the fruit of a living, vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. And the faithful are rewarded by Christ. Yes, because they are watchful, faithful, merciful. Yes, because they are now producing those good works which God prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. But as the demonstrable evidence of salvation, not the meritorious cause. It brings us to the fifth final observation. It is this. The faithful are compelled by love for Christ. You see it in verse 20. You see it in verse 22. The master comes back, servant one, servant two, can't wait to get back to see the master produce what they have done. 
Hear the master say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Now notice the sharp contrast with the third servant, verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, this is very telling, folks. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. Do you know what is at the root of that kind of fear? It's called ungodly fear. It's called an unholy fear, a servile fear. You know what's at the root of this kind of fear? Hatred. The servant hates the master. The servant has a complete misconception, distorted view of the master. Oh, it's servant one and two. They love their master. And faithfulness is compelled by love. Oh, and as we think of God's love for us, we think of the Father's love for us, a love which he set upon us before the foundation of the world. We think of the Son's love which took him to Calvary's cross. You remember his declaration in John 13, verse 1, uh, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the Spirit has been poured out in our hearts, Paul says in Romans 5, 5. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us. Oh, the love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Holy Spirit. The Father's giving of the Son a gift, an expression of His love. The Son's giving of the Spirit a gift, an expression of His love. Union with Christ, a gift. Identity in Christ, a gift. Forgiveness of sins, a gift. Reconciliation with God, peace of conscience, gifts. Justification, a gift. Adoption, a gift. Glorification, a gift. And all expressions of God's love for us. It's coming. I don't know what kind of rivers are running through here through London, but back there in Cambridge, you've got the speed and you've got the grand, and it's coming next month. That thaw is going to come, and it often comes quickly, and it's accompanied with rain. And as that snow melts, and as that rain falls, and it's all deposited into those rivers, they become just this rushing torrent, don't they? As they make their way down to Lake Erie, and anything put in that water is just swept away, my friend. That is the love of God. It is a rushing river that flows in one direction. It is love upon love upon love. And we love God. Why? Because He first loved us. And guess what, my friend? Faithfulness is the punchline. It's compelled by love. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we pray that You would enlarge our hearts. Enlarge our hearts to understand your love for us and may it indeed compel us to live for you. Oh, by your mercies, Paul pleads us to offer up our lives as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable worship. And so we pray this day that we might be overwhelmed by your tender mercies. We pray that we might be overwhelmed by the magnitude of your grace. And we pray, our Father, that this might be for the strengthening of our faith, hope, and love. It might be for the building up of Redemption Bible Chapel. And we pray that it might be for your eternal glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together.
Father, in our hearts and our lives and how we live for you this week, trusting in you, trusting in your word, trusting in your faithfulness. Father, thank you for this Sunday, every Sunday that we gather together is such a gift. And so as we go now, Lord, we, we say thank you. Thank you just for the richness of, of, of your body, your church, that we can be together to be encouraged. And Father, your presence here with us. Thank you for, for who you are and what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. We, we say all amen together. Amen, church. Amen. Go in peace and we'll see you again.